Good morning, Redeemer Church. Let me pray. God, I pray you would draw us into a new or deeper understanding of forgiveness. I'm struck by that phrase in the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And uh, I don't know, I feel like we get used to it, but it's actually really shocking. Forgiveness. So lean us, draw us into you, pour into us, make us wonder at forgiveness. Amen. This is the final sermon in our Together series when we've been looking at what we do and why, some of our practices, but also some of our postures, right? So we've talked about practices like going on missions or Sunday gatherings and gathering in groups, but we've looked at postures like pursue one another, right? And today, the posture is forgive, to be forgiving. I was thinking, uh, imagining us in the workplace and someone asking about our church, hey, what does your church do? You could say, oh, we... We have a Sunday gathering, we have groups, we have kids ministry. Like, but what if you said, we forgive one another? What if we did it, not just said it? Oh, man. Really? Do you? Do you forgive one another? We believe in the forgiveness of sins. I was just struck by that this morning. Who else does? Do atheists? Do you believe in the forgiveness of sins? No. Do Hindus? I'm not gonna, I don't have to go down the list, but let me just tell you this. There's one God who came and bled and died. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. We need that. Oh, we need that. It's our lifeline. Again, the apostles, when they wrote with them and the Early church fathers after them wrote and developed the Apostles' Creed. They were talking about God of heaven, the virgin birth, and all this. They, they put in that phrase, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. I praise God that that's a reality. It's part of life. It's our hope. It exists. And we take it for granted because we've been raised in the church and raised in a Christian culture. Well, of course, forgiveness of sins. It's stunning. It's shocking. It's a lifeline. So let's dig into that. Ephesians. So a lot here to draw out some themes. There's two main themes here that I'm seeing in the first part of this passage. So we're in Ephesians 17, verse, or just added to the scriptures. Uh, Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. Man, I need glasses. I'm getting old. Some large print. Um, verse 22. So I'm not going in order, but I want you to see something. It says this, put off your old self. Is the old self who you were before Christ. Assuming you've heard of Christ, that's what he said. Assuming you've heard of this, because he's speaking to believers, and he's saying, I want you to imitate your God. So assuming you've heard of your God, I'm going to speak to you. And everyone here has heard, because we are preaching Christ right now. We believe in the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ, right? Repent, lean into him, believe that. But assuming you have heard, there's, a, there's a, a command, what? To put off the old self. And what is that like? Let's back up. Verse 17. 
This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So what are the Gentiles? The Gentiles in their context are non-Jews, technically. But the way the scripture uses this term is this. If you are a non-Jew, a Gentile, who gets saved, you become a Jew. You are a Jew inwardly. Paul says it in Romans. You are no longer a Gentile. So what he's saying is, is don't act like the world that doesn't believe in Christ. You are a new creation. Don't Walk as the Gentiles do, and then it describes the Gentile mind, the unbelieving mind, the mind that's far from Christ. And here's what it says. Just a handful of words you see as you move through these next verses. Futility of mind, darkened understanding, alienated from God, ignorance, hardness of heart, and callousness. Hard, callous, darkened, futile, far from God. Scriptures tell us that when we are born, we are born blind to the glories of God or hard to the glories of God. He uses this different language. Here he's using callous and ignorant. There's God who's good and beautiful and forgiving, and we're born callous to that. St. Corinthians 4 puts it this way, that we, our minds are blinded and to be, excuse me, let me just read the whole verse. In their case, describing our natural condition, Born as unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, right? Or hardened or calloused their hearts to keep them from what? Seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So Christ is there. He's good. He's forgiven. He's a glorious, merciful lamb, but we're born blind to it. That's how the Gentiles walk. That's the root of the problem. And then it bears fruit. Verse 19b. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality and greed, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So there's the blind heart, blind to the glory of God, and then it plays out in impurity. And Paul is saying, put that off. That's the old self. But do what? Put on the new self. Verse 24. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So verse 23, to be renewed in the spirit of your mind. To leave the former way of life. And to be changed, right? That's what we're saying. <laughs> it's interesting. Uh, yeah. One of our young high school students today asked me, do you like change? Or what kind of change do you like? I was like, that's an interesting question. Like, why are you asking me that? Like, what do you mean? Like, pocket change? And he goes, I don't know. I just think it's a fascinating topic. And I was like, and I thought about it. And the answer I gave was heart transformation. I like that. I need that. I want that. Right? And the good news, this is what God does. I was reading an article recently. It was about, I don't have to name names, but a famous pastor who had a fall years ago. And, but now he's still in ministry. He just moved to another state and he's still in ministry. And this author is saying, you know, he's up to the same shenanigans. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. I don't know. But this author said this. Jesus does not change a leper's spots. doesn't what are we here for i believe in the forgiveness of sins i believe in transformation that i can be transformed that god can change us you know people can change us i'm not the same man i would be if i hadn't married my wife i believe she's changed me but she can't reach deep enough god can go deep and change the leopard's spots Right? 2 Corinthians 4, 6 puts it this way, right? Remember how we're born blind to glory? 2 Corinthians 4 says this. Yes, 
You're born blind, but good news, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. So the same God who has the power to make light shine in the dark, right? Speaking into empty space, there's darkness. And God says, let there be light. There's light now. He says, that same God with that same power speaks into the human heart. The same darkness. That same God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. No longer callous, no longer ignorant, no longer blind, but seen, renewed mind, renewed spirit, new creation, alive to the glory of God. And he's saying, you can have a temptation to live in the old ways, but I want to invite you into the new life. I have a, what many would consider a really fast motorcycle. It's a Harley-Davidson night rod. It goes zero to 60 in three and a half seconds. I'm committing crimes all week. You better believe that. No cops in here. Um, Oh, I believe in the forgiveness of crimes. I've been enjoying that. Well, something happened to me this week. I had the opportunity to drive a Tesla. It's incredible. It's so fast and beautiful and responsive. I drove it for a few days, and then I went and got back on my motorcycle, and it felt like a Gentile. It was callous unresponsive, ignorant. I detested the experience. I literally did. I came home and I said, I think I got to sell this thing. It was not, it was the old self, right? How do you go back? How do you go back? I'm ruined. Thanks. But that's supposed to be the Christian experience, that you come alive to Christ and the heart is now responsive, not callous. And we can quench the spirit and creep back into that life and drink from the table of the world and do great damage to our spirit. Now, the good news is that God is with us, and if we are his, he will keep us and change us. But we don't want that. We don't want to be there. The old self. Oh, it's disgusting. It's detestable. We want to walk in the new life. Right? So Paul is here calling us. He says, you've heard of Christ and what he did for you. Now put on the new self and imitate him. Be imitators. A little later, you can see this very clearly in, ver- in chapter 5. The next chapter, he says this, be imitators of God. All right, you're born far from him. Now you're forgiven, brought into, into him, united with him, saved. Now imitate him. Now what does that look like? There's a lot here. And in this next passage here from 25 to 32, he lists a lot of things. And I'm not going to hit them all up, but he says things like, you know, do not sin. God doesn't sin. Give no opportunity to the devil. God doesn't do that. Uh, do honest work. God does that. Share. God does that. Use words that are good for building up. God does that. But there's, there's all these traits of God. But there's one that I believe rises to the top. It's the, the creme de la creme, right? So when you, when you make cream... The way that happens is the cream is rich and it rises to the top. That's the cream, right? The creme de la creme is the cream of the cream, even richer cream. All of God's attributes are creme, but there's the creme de la creme. What is that? Are they all equal? In a sense, kind of, but these, there's these attributes, neighborhood of attributes in the Bible that, that are highlighted. And I want to say it's this. It's forgiveness. It's mercy, it's 
God's grace. It's this neighborhood of very similar traits, right? Is he a God of justice? Yeah. <laughs> but imagine this. If I say to my wife, hey, uh, hey babe, uh, God's coming over for dinner. She said, oh. And maybe she's never met him. And she says, well, what's he like? He's holy, righteous, pure. He loves truth. He will not overlook anything. He will not lie. He will tell you the truth. Does this sound like a fun dinner guest? Half our dinners are built on lies. Let's get together and lie and hide about who we really are so we can have a good night. But here comes this guy that's going to lay it all out there. No holding back. He's going to tell you who you are. He's spotless. Without the creme de la creme, this is actually a terrifying being. That's great. But I'm not spotless. Is there forgiveness of sins? Is there forgiveness of sins? Is he merciful? Is there grace? Because otherwise I don't want him coming over. The Old Testament highlights this. Exodus 33, Moses said to God, show me your glory. What is that? Your, your goodness. Like, what's so great about you? I want to know. Show me your glory. And God could have said many things. And he has many glories. But he showed him the creme de la creme. He said, all right, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. Right? So he says, my name, the Lord. And then he adds kind of like a descriptor of him. Think of this, like Thor, God of thunder. Right? There's Thor's name, Thor. Who is he? He's the God of thunder. I will proclaim my name to you, the Lord. What are you the God of? See, when thunder comes, we know Thor's riding on the clouds, right? But what is, what's, what's riding on the clouds when the Lord comes? You know what it is? It's compassion. When there's compassion in the air, God is in the clouds. Listen to him. I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. All right, here comes the catchphrase. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I show mercy. Now, there's a couple layers here. Part of the glory here is that he doesn't owe that to anybody. He doesn't have to give it to anyone. I will do it to whom I will, right? That's part of his glory. But part of the glory is that he has it. That's what he's riding on the clouds with, mercy. That's his catchphrase. That's what was highlighted. That's the creme de la creme. Show me your glory, God. Mercy. Forgiveness of sin. The New Testament highlights it. So bookends, and it's all through there. But okay, at the beginning, that's what God says. Now go to the end. Revelation 5, familiar passage for us here. Jesus is being worshipped by uh, spirits and the nations and everything, right? And here's what they say. You have worth. You have glory. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, right? To usher in the end of history and the new heavens and new earth. Why? For you were slain. That's your worth. Because out of your grace and mercy, you died for us. Is that his only worth? Christ is everything. And yet, at the end of history, when it's all coming down and the nations and the spirits all gather to praise him, you are worthy. And he says, why? Tell me why I'm worthy. Sum it up. You were slain. Mercy. You're the God of mercy. <laughs> and by your blood, 
you ransomed people for God. You took us from being Gentiles to being in your family. That's your worth. Oh, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. So our call is to imitate that. So that if you zoom down to verse 32, I kind of uh, went quickly through some of the traits of God, but the one that struck me is verse 32. Okay, be kind to one another. Gosh, just be kind. We justify so much anger. Be kind, well, unless, blah, 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 blah. Well, then don't. Be kind. Tender-hearted. God is tender-hearted, right? He's not callous. Right? You get this sense here? Like, don't be like your old self, callous. It's just callousness and roughness and un- just unkindness. And he goes, come be like me. What do you like? Kind? I'm tender-hearted toward you. I'm tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So in Christ, God forgives us. Wow, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. Now you go and do likewise. What does that mean to forgive one another? Uh, a man named Thomas Watson gave this definition. Now I want you to pick of someone, pick someone that you need to forgive. I hope I'm not preaching an irrelevant sermon today. No one here needs this. And remember, Christ says, forgive your enemies. So this is, this is everyone. Your friend, your neighbor, your pastor, your enemies. Okay. Resist revenge. Well, let me first tell you how we define forgiveness, I think, often in the church. So we move to a different church and we forget about them. That's what we do when we're wronged. This is heartbreaking. What are we doing? Do we believe in the forgiveness of sins? No, we just leave and forget. But that's not forgiveness. It's active, resisting revenge, not returning evil for evil, wishing them well. <laughs> right? So not when you hear something went wrong for them, it's not tasty. Grieving at their calamities. Praying for their welfare. Seeking reconciliation so far as it depends on you. Coming to their aid in distress. Basically what God did for us. That's what He did for us. He did not return evil for evil. He wished us well. He grieves at our calamities. Prays for our welfare. He sought reconciliation. And He came to our aid. So we're to highlight that. It should be a mark of the church, right? To spread that as an aroma. Let me skip a little ahead to chapter 5. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Christ's death for us is an aroma, a fragrance that's rich and pleasing to God. And then we are to be, likewise, an aroma, the aroma of Christ. What does that mean? Preaching forgiveness and practicing it. There should be an aroma, right? Someone visits our church, 
That should be, oh, well, how, well I had good music, decent teaching. Uh, you know, I like, uh, you know, the greeting team was nice. Like, what if they came and said, oh, there's a stench of forgiveness. Oh, these people forgive one another. How would you know? Well, I guess when you visit a church, sin against them. You know, like attack the pastor's wife or something, and we'll see. We'll see if this is a forgiving church. Um, highlight that. We want to highlight, right? If God's forgiveness is highlighted in the scriptures, and we want to highlight God, then we, we must forgive one another. It also holds the community together. We will sin. We will sin against each other. And we need to forgive one another. And I just know the human heart, that when we start talking about this, we start finding the exceptions. And I just want to shut that down. Just stop it. It's not good for your soul. Let me put it this way. Are you forgiving enough? Have you, are you, have you approached the godliness of forgiveness, right? Is that, are you like, no, no, I am, I am a forgiving person. Like, don't, don't let the, the, the person and the, well, what about this guy? And what about that? I mean, we do. We start saying things like, well, certainly you don't mean, what if? You're not saying, I don't want to, I'm not meant to be a doormat, right? Certainly there's balance and wisdom. Just dig in. Don't look for a way out. Look for a way in to godliness, to godliness. Because basically what we're saying is we don't want to be like God. I don't want to be taken advantage of. I don't want to be in an unfair, unbalanced situation like God. That's what He's like. He's taken advantage of. He forgives people who aren't sorry at first. He forgives people who continually sin against him. He goes to the death, and God is saying, imitate me. And in our heart, we're saying, no. No, it's too much. The reality is, it is too much for us. Paul talks about us being the aroma of Christ everywhere, right? For some, a fragrance unto death. For some, a fragrance unto life. And then he goes, who is sufficient for these things? Paul's saying, imitate God. I'm saying, God is telling us, imitate me. And we should say, who is sufficient for this? I was listening to another preacher talk about this concept of forgiveness. And he said, for humans to forgive is as impossible as flying. I might as well be up here telling you to fly. Why would God tell us to do things that are impossible for us? So he can be merciful. (laughs) Forgive one another. Fear, hesitation, human weakness, old self, callousness coming in. God, I'm not sufficient for this. Excellent. I'm going to be merciful to you. Not just by forgiving you, but by changing you bringing you into that space, giving you people to forgive. (laughs) So when someone sins against you, that is someone God has given you to forgive. 
That's God's gift to you. We just don't think that way. Oh, this person's saying, God's out of the picture. God took the day off. He's not in control. This, he's like, now we can do church. See, we, we often, we join a church community, and we go, I'm here until someone sins against me. And then I leave the church. But I'm saying, now you can actually do church. You haven't done church. You have not done church yet. Now they sinned against you. Let's start church. We need God's help. So, that's the good news is what God commands, He provides. Right? He says, forgive one another, and I'm going to provide. I'm going to, I'm going to work in you, lead you through that. There's an old little poem by John Bunyan. It says this. Run, John, run, the law commands. Right? The law comes. It says, run or forgive or fly. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. There's better news. It's the gospel, what God does in Christ. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids, it bids us forgive and gives us wings. So we come to remember, to ask, to celebrate, to behold. Forgiveness is vital. It's our lifeline. It's, it's the fabric of the universe. You know why? Why is there so much evil in the world? Because there's so much mercy. So we think, oh, so much evil in the world, then God must not exist or he must not be good. But I'm saying the reason is because he's so merciful. We sing this lyric in this song, Lord, you know the hearts of men and still you let them live. He Mercy is the fuel for the universe. If he was merciless, we would all be destroyed. It's mercy. It's stunning. It's stunning mercy. Look at your heart. Look at your life. Look at Afghanistan. Look at politics. Look at the government. Look at starvation. Look at oppression. Look at human trafficking. Like All of that, mercy has to be so huge. For that not to just be stamped out and every human life with it. Mercy is marching through history. It's, it's what's riding on the clouds. It's in the air. It's in the air. We breathe. We wake up. Your mercies are new every morning. It's the root of existence. There's a man named David Strauss who was a, an atheist. The leading representative of German rationalism. So he did not believe in God. And after spending a lifetime erasing belief in God from the minds of others, he says this, My philosophy leaves me utterly forlorn. I had to look that up. Pitifully sad and abandoned. I feel like one caught in the merciless jaws of an automatic machine, not knowing at what time one of its great hammers may crush me. He saw the end of his philosophy. If there's no God, there's no mercy. It's a merciless universe. But I'm saying it's literally exactly the opposite. Mercy is the life of the universe. <sighs> to remember what we've been spared from, right? You know, I've heard a lot of people give their testimony, and, 
and mine's similar of when I tell my testimony, I talk about my life, right, my former self, and then the new self. But we're not very hell conscious. Like, I was destined for hell. Like, that's the object of wrath. Romans 9 tells us this. There's two kinds of people in the world. Vessels of mercy, vessels of wrath. Not vessels of mercy and people who can just live simple little lives. It's wrath. Radically different. Mercy into the arms of God and being gifted and graced with all his goodness. Or wrath. Utter destruction and death. That is what we have been spared from. There's another atheist who said this. His name is Sir Francis Newport, head of an English atheist club to those gathered around his deathbed. He was conscious of hell. You need not tell me there is no God, for I know there is one, and I am in his presence. You need not tell me there is no hell. I feel myself already slipping. Wretches, cease your idle talk about there being hope for me. I know I am lost forever. Oh, that fire. Oh, the insufferable pangs of hell. Oh, that I could lie for a thousand years upon that fire that is never quenched to purchase the favor of God and be united to him again. But it is a fruitless wish. Millions and millions of years will bring me no more nearer to the end of my torments than one poor hour. Oh, eternity, eternity, forever and ever. Oh, the insufferable pangs of hell. That is what you've been spared from. You believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. To remember what we've been forgiven for, not just from hell, but for what? Life with Christ. We sing, there's a line right in, in the song, White as Snow, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Restore it to me. I remember the new birth. I remember the new life. I have allowed callous to enter parts of my mind and understanding and heart. God, I don't want to be there. I want that fresh experience. Charles Spurgeon, an old famous preacher, describing his testimony. Here's what he says. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing that I was lost. But oh, the blessed gospel of the God of grace came to me. And with it, a sovereign word. Sovereign means he can give it to who he wants. A sovereign word, deliver him. <laughs> and I, who was but a minute before, as wretched as a soul could be, could have danced. Why didn't you? For the very merriment of heart. And as the snow fell on my road home from the little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told of the pardon I had found. For I was as white as the driven snow through the grace of God. He was made spotless. Now, became a famous preacher and ministered for years. And many years later, he says this. To be forgiven is such sweetness <laughs> that honey is tasteless in comparison with it. But there's one thing sweeter still, and that is to forgive. Why? Is that true? As it is more blessed to give than to receive... So to forgive rises to a stage higher in experience than to be forgiven. I think he's right. Here's why. To be forgiven is human. To forgive is divine. It's divine. God's saying, be godly. Be divine. Yes, you receive my forgiveness, and you are a human. But you have been made a son of God. You are in the royal family. 
You are to be brought into the divine experience. God doesn't get forgiven. He forgives. He's inviting us to greater life. So, be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgive one another. As God in Christ forgave you. Let me invite the response team up and we will continue our worship. So, musicians, communion servers... We're going to sing. Singing does a lot. Part of what it does is it tenderizes the heart. Music, melody, right? Because there are calluses there. So we come. It's a work. God, through this song, through our experience of worship, explode those places, those rocks, you know, the soften the callousness. Like, let's fight. Let's fight for joy. The harder the heart, the harder you should sing. That's why I'm so outlandish with my worship, because I'm so outlandish in my sin. You believe God has revealed something for the church today, a revelation, a word. We ask that you submit that to Glenn here in Cedar Rapids and the MC in Cedar Falls, and they will help discern that. Be listening to God. Sometimes he'll say something to you, for you, and sometimes he'll speak through you for someone else. Maybe just one person, maybe the church. Listen for that. Ask Him. So it's an opportunity to give, to respond to God's giving to us. Simplest way to do that is through text. We should have a text slide available, yeah. Thank you for those that do give and support this ministry. And we're going to take communion. Mm. So... <laughs> Jesus gave us something to do when we gather. He wanted us to remember something. What was it? His justice? He said, I want you to remember my forgiveness. That's the thing you're going to forget. You're going to forget it because it's unlike you. It's godly. It's from another world. It rides on the clouds. And so I want you to remember. Come back to this. We Believe in the forgiveness of sins. That's what we're doing, proclaiming that. So he instructed his disciples. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. I was slain. He wants us to remember the slaughter, the thing we'll sing about at the end of history. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup. After they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, I'm buying a new thing, not the old thing that you were, I'm doing something new. I'm going to purchase that with my blood. Come and remember my forgiveness. Let's pray. God, thank you for all that. <laughs> so we invite your spirit to come and minister to us specifically and powerfully. Amen.